Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Biden administration's executive order on cybersecurity from three years ago now alerted the uninitiated to the existence of software bills of material, SBOMs. The idea is knowing all of the elements that make up a software package can help buyers better understand their cybersecurity holes. But can the SBOM also give hackers the blueprint they need? For some analysis, we turn to Endor Labs advisor and former federal cybersecurity manager, Chris Hughes. Chris, good to have you with us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to be here. And you've seen this from both sides now, from industry and from government. And you testified recently before the House Subcommittee on Cybersecurity, IT, and Government Innovation. Gotta love those titles. And the idea that the SBOM is a kind of a two-way sluice way. Tell us more about what you feel here. Yeah, so actually it wasn't my testimony, but it was a testimony from the Committee on Oversight and Accountability. Uh, it was in a talk titled Safeguarding the Federal Software Supply Chain. And it represented, you know, folks from private industry as well as some public sector organizations, you know, focused on government and procurement and things of that nature. And, you know, one of the things that were brought up is, you know, the SBOM serving as a roadmap for an attacker. And this is actually a topic that's been brought up around SBOMs in the past by groups like NTIA, CISA, and industry that has engaged them. And, you know, you know, obviously some merit to that. If you're disclosing exactly what's in a product, it can be vulnerable. But that said, it's not as if the government is asking for vendors to publicly disclose the SBOM and post it on a website, for example, or share it out for the world to see. Uh, they're asking for it to be delivered to the government. And obviously that's going to include safeguarding it, you know, having things like access control in place and properly storing it, you know, limiting who has access to it, encrypting it at rest, you know, things of that nature. And that said, you know, the reality is that attackers seem to be doing quite well already in terms of exploiting vulnerable products. Uh, what this does is it actually you know addresses a long-standing information asymmetry between software suppliers and software consumers in this case being the federal government clarifying exactly what's in a product and what vulnerable components for example may be in a product that they're consuming and buying and purchasing and it represents the government's attempt to use their large purchasing power kind of push this systemic change across the ecosystem yeah it strikes me there are really two pieces of the s-bomb that could be vulnerable one is those references to open source elements which is what most software is at least partially made of. Some of it's mostly open source and with a little bit of window dressing to make it proprietary. And therefore, if it's open source, everybody knows what's in it anyway. And then there is the proprietary part that was coded by that vendor, which might be less known, but also exploitable. So does the SBOM kind of bring together two things that might have been better left separate? Uh, not necessarily. If I'm consuming something just like uh, in the medical industry or food or anything of that nature, I need to understand what's in it entirely, not just partially what's in it. I think what this is, is, you know, is some attempt in, in terms of the industry looking to push back on this requirement because transparency can be intimidating for some. Uh, if they have a lot of vulnerable components within their product and they haven't done their due diligence around secure software development, for example, you know, that level of transparency can be a bit intimidating and it could be threatening in terms of wanting to disclose that to the customer. Uh, like you said, maybe it's largely open source just with a little bit of window dressing on it, or maybe it involves a lot of vulnerable components that we haven't addressed and we kind of just focus on speed to market and getting out there and you know getting revenue, for example. Uh, so that transparency can be intimidating. And I think, like you said, 
Uh, we need to see what's entirely in the product, not necessarily just a portion of it, because I need to know entirely what I'm consuming. And then if something happens, I need to be able to understand, you know, where do I have this product in my ecosystem? Where am I vulnerable? You know, for example, the Cyber Safety Review Board showed that some federal agencies spent tens of thousands of hours just trying to find where they had Log4j because they didn't really understand within their ecosystem, you know, whether proprietary products, you know, open source software, things of that nature, where they have these components in the enterprise. And so we need this level of transparency and visibility. Which also points to the fact that the big breaches, whether it's Log4j or something that Microsoft puts out on Patch Tuesdays for its own proprietary software, everybody gets hit, both open source and proprietary, with some regularity. Yeah, that's spot on. I think that, honestly, there's been a bit of an overemphasis on open source software. Not that it's inherently bad. We do need to understand our consumption and use of open source software. But if you look at the past year, for example, there's been no shortage of breaches and incidents impacting some of the largest, most capable software providers, you know, the Microsofts, the Octas, and, you know, continue to name names, you know, whether it's open source components they were using or their products themselves that got hacked or breached or caused an incident of some sort, and many of which included impacting you know, several federal agencies. Uh, so the software supply chain is much bigger than just open source. It includes all products and all suppliers. We're speaking with Chris Hughes. He's chief security advisor at Endor Labs and a former federal cybersecurity practitioner in both civilian and DOD agencies. Therefore, what's the best way to operationalize your use of an S-bomb? You mentioned first you have to get it, and then second you have to make sure that it's protected and not just let out to the public because you have it as you mentioned at the top, then what? How do you make use of it in a way that really enhances cybersecurity? Yeah, I think uh, this is actually a very critical question, and this is where the testimony raised some questions that do have some merit, is you're trying to avoid this becoming a compliance checkbox exercise of, yes, I have this document, I just file it away, stuff it in a cabinet drawer somewhere, never look at it again. It has to be actually made actionable. Uh, so CISA, for example, has put out some guidance on operationalizing SBOMs, and we're seeing industry do the same, you know, organizations like uh, OWASP or the Linux Foundation, for example. So you need to take these artifacts and actually start to integrate them into your broader cybersecurity supply chain risk management program, your vulnerability management program, integrate it into activities like procurement and acquisitions. Uh, so you have to take these things, actually enrich them with vulnerability intelligence, understand, you know, what you're consuming, where it exists. And then how do you actually take action on that, whether it's working with suppliers to kind of get vulnerabilities addressed and remediated or being better prepared for things like incident response. If there is another log4j and there will be at some time, I'm sure, as well as, you know, integrating into things like procurement and acquisitions so that you can make more risk informed decisions on the products you buy. It sounds like a big exercise and cybersecurity is already a big exercise. Is this something that can be delivered as a service, say, by a vendor, a managed service vendor to do SBOM analysis for you? It is, yeah. And anyone who's been to the large, you know, kind of uh, cybersecurity events in the past year or two, you know, RSA, Black Hat, things of that nature, you'll find no shortage of innovative software supply chain vendors, you know, being driven by venture capital and, you know, things across the ecosystem. They're providing these platforms that can take SBOMs, enrich them, you know, start to kind of provide that centralized hub uh, for you to use across the enterprise. So there's proprietary solutions coming to the market. There's obviously some open source software solutions and platforms that can be leveraged for this purpose. And you can integrate these in things like, you know, CICD pipelines. Uh, so there's a lot of capabilities out there. It's just much like any other kind of cybersecurity initiative like Zero Trust, it's a journey. So organizations just have to make that first step, you know, kind of iterate on that and keep addressing gaps and maturing. And so far as I can tell, the government hasn't quite made the bridge between its own imposed requirement to use S-bombs, to obtain S-bombs and use them, and the efforts that it is imposing on industry to have compliance and evidence of cybersecurity good practice 
the uh, nascent CMMC program. There's also new CISA guidance and so forth for the civilian side. But so far, nobody's asked industry to have S-bombs and provide proof of those S-bombs to the government. Sounds like that could be next, though. Oh, yeah, that's definitely coming. You know, if you look at the memos from Office of Management and Budget that came out of Cybersecurity Executive Order OMB 2218 and 2316, for example, those specifically call on industry to start providing self-attestation of following things like NIST Secure Software Development Framework and potentially providing S-bombs in addition to those self-attestations. But, you know, there is one uncomfortable aspect of that is in those memos, it refers to proprietary software and products, but it kind of excludes government-developed software, for example, from these same kind of requirements. It's a bit of, uh, you know, we need to eat our own dog food. And if we're going to push industry to do these kind of activities, we need to be ensuring that we're doing them as well. Because malicious actors, they're going to target everything, whether it's developed by the government and contracts, uh, you know, support or developed by proprietary software vendors. And it also builds trust with the industry when we do what we're asking them to do themselves. Yeah, safe to say that even in those instances where the government does develop its own software, and that's kind of returned, not to the degree that maybe it was in the 70s and 80s, but it's somewhat back now, that, yeah, they're also using open source plus their own coding, and it looks just like industry, and therefore, as you say, yeah, S-bomb from you folks too, and good practice. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, not only does it build trust, but, you know, if we're going to talk about taking these artifacts and operationalizing them, you know, making them actionable and using them to drive down risk, uh, what better way to do it than do it internally in our own development practices, our own software development activities, you know, uh, you know, kind of practice and muscle memory with, you know, producing these artifacts, integrating them into our broader cybersecurity uh, activities and programs and maturing that aspect of it so that when we do produce policy or requirements on the industry, it's kind of grounded in practical experience rather than just kind of theoreticals or, you know, what would be nice to have. We have experience with doing these things. Chris Hughes is Chief Security Advisor at Endor Labs and a former federal cybersecurity practitioner himself. I guess you were in the Air Force, you were at the GSA, anywhere else? Yeah, I actually spent uh, four years in the Air Force doing cybersecurity, went from there to the Navy for about four and a half years uh, at an organization called NIWIC Atlantic and doing cloud security and DevSecOps, and then went to GSA on a part of the FedRAMP team there uh, reviewing cloud services. And I've you know been around the government uh, contracting space for quite a bit, working with both DOD and federal civilian agencies as well. All right. Well, we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, Is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture 
because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. 
you. your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.